Lynn was probably there. So first of all, I want to tell you that this is Joe Button at Tate, and in the back there was a, a basket for the homeless community. So Joe, would you like to say what, what happens with that basket? Anything you give goes to the um, get buying, do, do, buying them a dinner. Sorry, I didn't expect to do this. And um, we do a little breakfast, you know, just juice and cereal and stuff like that. And some of them have jobs, so then it also, uh, for lunches, when some of them are trying to integrate, going back to work. That's it. And we've been doing it since 1992. And Joe has been doing it for 19, since 1992. It is my pleasure. And Joe, do you go personally with? I go personally, but I don't stay. I just you replenish. I replenish. Okay. And I say hi. Okay. Stay and serve, but you know some people do. Okay. okay. Along with other religious institutions mm-hmm. in this county, yep. they take turns on who brings food and who provides shelter. And so far, it has. This is not. This is so off the beaten track. It wouldn't work out for shelter. But the the Mill Street Center has just men. I think unless they've added a space for women. So now women as well. And it's on Mill Street. So it's actually good to know because when you stop anywhere in the county and you talk to somebody because they look like they might need assistance or shelter, I always ask, do you have a place to sleep tonight? And if they don't, I tell them there is a place on Mill Street. And, you know, if you want, I'll get you a taxi or I'll I'll pay for an Uber or something. If you get in and I, I can say take to Mill Street and you can get in if you need a place to stay. So it's just good to know. Mill Street's a little street, so I don't remember the number on Mill Street, but it's a thing to know. So who are the people who haven't been here before on a Wednesday morning? What's your name? David. David. Are you just visiting the county, or do you live here? I live in San Francisco. Why did you come today? Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah. Um, my name's William. And where do you normally live, William? Martinez. Okay. And you were off today from whatever work or whatever? You could say that. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to say that you have any relative here in the class? Yeah, Jeff. Jeff is his father. If you look at them, they 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 are, they look similar to each other. <laughs> okay, here we go. Who else here has is new to this group? Uh, who here is new? Yeah. What's your name? Thank you, Mariana. I'm really happy that you're here. Really happy. 
Who else? Yeah. So I'm glad you're here, Stephen. Who else is here for the first time? Yeah. Uh, I'm Missy, and I'm new to the Wednesday, but I always listen to it on uh, Dharma City. Oh, good. Thank you. But I, I came here um, in 2000 uh, for your for the Pasana retreat with you, and I, I came. I, I did it accidentally. I thought I was going to a conference. <laughs> A few times over the years, decades that I've been teaching, somebody comes to a retreat and doesn't know something like crucial. Like this is not a conference, this is a 10 days of nobody conferring about anything except in their own mind. And there there have been really notable times where somebody all of a sudden is like a deer in the headlights. Ah, and then I get here. I remember, I'm glad that you came and stayed. And uh, I remember one young man, I did not maybe because he was young, but maybe because he was young. He looks like he was, you know, not yet 20, but uh, I think he thought he was taking a summer school course. That was it. <laughs> and he did, and he stayed. But it was very, very hard for him to stay still and stay sitting down. So we told him that the instructions include paying attention in every position. So you could be, uh, it says in the Metta Sutta, in the Loving Kindness Sutta, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. So we told him, stand. Nobody falls asleep standing up. So he stood for most of the retreat. And look out at a whole room full of people the whole time. And here's this one guy standing. And he was all right standing. And you don't fall asleep. And he was not so antsy. Actually, I don't remember, but we could have, I could have given him the instruction. If you get tired standing, you could walk back and forth in the back of the room. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. So he stayed and he tried. I love that. When, when, sometimes we talk about what is the recollection that he should sustain. Anybody want to say what's the recollection? This is a spot quiz on the loving kindness sermon. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. Think about that. I think that I, I, I don't walk around all day saying, may all beings be at ease, may all beings be at ease. But I'd li- I am, we've talked about this a lot, I, I am most mindful of when my mind is aversive and not liking things. Or usually when I'm not liking things, it makes me mad at something. I don't like what they said. I don't like how they look. I don't like what they're doing. I don't like the freeway is too crowded. I don't like that this, that the line is too long. This isn't right. That's not right. The uh, <laughs> If you go to a movie, I, I discovered if I go into the movie at the time that it's listed that it's going to show, the first ten minutes are previews. The previews are at a million decibels. They're way louder than the feature itself. And if I go in and sit down and it starts, my mind says, what are they doing? What are they doing? And I was getting up and going out and finding the manager on duty and having them turn it down. Now, 
and, and thinking, they're killing people's hearing. So may all be at ease, including me. I don't go in now until 10 minutes after it says to go in. We avoid the whole thing. You just walk down a different street. You don't necessarily look for opportunities to be upset. But may all beings be at ease means including me, but it really includes other people. So it really is mindfulness of the presence or absence of goodwill in my mind, which is really what I think I've been teaching about. I had a particular thought today. I'm very happy to see that we have new guests today. Did you all come together just now? Yes. yes. Who brought? Well, that was wonderful. That's wonderful. So over the bridge, that Richmond. Whoa! All right. Thank you very much. What's your name? Yeah. I'm delighted. I am delighted. You know what? We actually, at this point, lest I forget, uh, Ace. Okay. <laughs> what happened was. I was on the verge of forgetting, and I looked over here, and I saw Toshota, friend of Ace, who's not here, because if Ace was here, he would say, this is a time, Sylvia, that you always say, turn to a person next to you and tell them hello and say some welcoming things and why you're glad they're here and why you came, and we'll have about two minutes of hello, ready, set, go. So particularly talk to the people who you haven't seen before.
So you don't have anybody to talk to, so... That was a loud... That was a whole... The whole world heard. Today is your actual birthday. Yesterday. I'm very happy that we did that. Actually, there are two particular points always in the uh, in the evolving of each Wednesday morning uh, that we're here that I really have a sense, okay, we did what's required of us. And one is that we spend those few minutes saying to some other live living being, why are you here? Hello, have a good day. Um, you know, it's a really, it's an important thing. We touch somebody, if not in physical contact, uh, which is fine, but in at least, in at least voice contact and, and uh, heart contact. I'm glad you're here. I hope you're having a good day. I hope this is helpful for you. Whatever it is, I think that as I'm, as I, I was starting to say just before that what I am in my own life hoping to cultivate as my practice is a spirit of goodwill and um, tenderness towards people. I was thinking about that. It was sometime in the last week of teaching that uh, I was with a group of people, maybe it was here last week, I don't know, but I was with a group of people and I said, well, how do you feel now that after we've sat quietly for a while? And they said, I feel tender. And I thought, oh, that's a good word. We don't say tender a lot. You know, I said, I feel calm. Uh, I, I feel... But to feel tender, like, ah. Uh. One of the things that... Um, we in the past have done is uh, introduce who's new. Did everybody who was new get to get introduced over here? No, somebody did not. What's your name? I'm not Sam. Sam, I'm glad you're here, Sam. Welcome. Yeah. Carolyn, did you come the back way? No? Straight down to Francis Drake. Okay. The back way to Petaluma and to Novato and also to Petaluma is full of cows with babies at this time of year. So it's another thing that makes you feel, ah, you know, especially if you're not in a, already in a tender mood when you look at that, you think, ah. What? Yeah. I'm happy that you're here. You know, yesterday, um, my son, who lives in Nevada with his family, has raised sheep for, uh, I guess, 10 years. They have these two big guys, sheep, 
that mill around on their property. Not mill, I mean, they, there's a fence, but they, they mow. I mean, they, 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 they keep the, it's a, it's a fairly big piece of property, and Thor and Juan have been mowing for, for ten years. And I didn't know until yesterday morning when uh, my daughter-in-law phoned and said, oh, she sent me a photo, by the way, that I looked at. And I said, oh, because the photo is a baby lamb. I mean, what is this baby lamb? So I phone up, what is a baby lamb? She said, a baby lamb is arriving this afternoon. Well, Thor and Juan are two men. Um, they said, well, Thor died last week. You know, he was an old sheep, and they died. So they discovered Thor was dead, so they needed to do what they needed to do to take him away. But apparently sheep don't do well by themselves. They're extremely herd animals, and they pine if they're by themselves. You have to right away move in another sheep with them. So uh, Trish did a lot of... She had saved an ad from some journal that she saw six months ago called A Woman Up in Sonoma, You Have Baby Lambs. Yes, have a, a four-month-old, two-month-old lamb. Lamb was getting delivered yesterday afternoon. So we said, oh, we'll come up and see the arrival because how is Juan going to like this baby? So we come up. Uh, I come with my husband. I call another one of my daughters who brings her daughter. Everybody comes to see the baby getting introduced. Talk about tender. That's a good thing to do. It beats listening to the news, you know. But, (laughs) But what I want to say is that this is a normal feeling if you have the time to do it. So we, I go up there, and, my, and Trish is sitting out uh, outside her house on a chair, just sitting there. So what are you doing out here? She said, well, the baby's in there, and I'm watching that Juan is nice to him. Juan is sitting over there eyeing him, and the baby's looking. And she said, when he just came in, they smelled each other, and it seemed to be all right, but I'm not, I'm not convinced that Juan is not going to want to establish his superiority. He's a big guy, you know, and he's this little sheep, little lamb. So we left just when there was a little bit of Juan was establishing and he came and he was budding that sheep. So then there's a lot of phone calls and emails. How is Juan? How is this baby? How is it doing? And I thought to myself, the thing is actually, the news this morning is they're doing all right. But that... It's, it's, it's not, I, I think we're not special people. Anybody would do that same kind of thing. And I think what I wanted to tell us, why I wanted to tell the story, is that I think that that particular impulse of the heart, I am caring about some living being, not myself, is really what is sustaining in the end. You know, that uh, somebody sent me a, 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 a plant as a gift and I, I said, oh, I'm so happy. You know, I'm not really very good at, um, uh, at growing things. Some people have more... Some people are better at it. Everything grows. I'm not that good at it. But this was a succulent, so nothing, you know, you can't hardly... So that this is the kind of care I could take. And we had a big exchange about how caring for something that's alive is good for you. Because it, it allows you to express that, oh, I need to take care of somebody. Which means it's not me. Ah, it's somebody out there. And I think every time we connect to something 
that we can actually connect with. We're connected with the whole world, especially if we think about that. That all over the world there are baby lambs and sheep and baby calves. And you look around, everybody's taking care of what they need to take care of. Human beings not currently all doing a great job of taking care. Not even of other human beings or of the home we live in. But if the whole world could suddenly be touched, not admonished or not subdued, but touched, so that the, the sitting or walking, standing or lying down, one should sustain this recollection, may all beings be at ease. Then to think about my, my ability to wish may all beings be at ease, it really eases my own mind. It means at that moment I'm not uh, building up any kind of uh, aversion in my mind. Enmity. There's a particular line in loving-kindness practice where you say, may I be free of enmity and danger, which people, including me, when they first encounter, think, well, that means may nobody come after me with enmity. And I think it means may I be free of enmity because I would then be in danger of having a discontented mind and heart. If I were free of enmity, I'd be able to love all beings or at least, yes, love, not like all beings. A lot of beings I don't like particularly. But but to be able to not wish ill, that's what that love means. When I first talk about it, people often say, you can't really be thinking that I'm going to love so-and-so when they mention some some person that isn't generally felt to be doing good things in the world. But it's not to love them in the sense of admiring them. It's not wish not wishing them ill. Actually, my friend Jack says it's more than that. It's wishing them well so that they'd be lovable. But may all beings be at ease is pretty good. That's good. I'll do that for myself. Normally... We sit, uh, we sit for, we would have started sitting quietly for 25 minutes or so and then have a kind of a formal teaching afterwards. And uh, last week, and we're not going to do that today, we will sit, but not right now, soon. Um, last week I was talking about uh, what is it that actually changes the mind? What, what? Tricycle Magazine, which was the first widely spread Buddhist magazine, used to have as its motto, change your mind. And they used to have a, a big rally in Central Park every summer called Change Your Mind Day. And uh, I actually, when I first wrote my first book, I wanted to call it, I changed my mind. And the publishers would not let me do it because they said, no one will know what you mean. They said, what's the name of your book? I changed my mind. So, okay, what did you change it to? You know, and it's, it's one of those things. So that it's subtle. You have to be in an in-group to know about it. You have to pronounce it, I changed my mind, you know, then they go, oh, now I got it, but it's, you know, the the cover of the book doesn't talk to you, so 
So it's not called that. It's called it's easier than you can than you think, which it's not. So it's the only thing in the in the book that is not really true. <laughs> that everything else is true. So last week we were talking about what are the things that actually change your mind. I feel like in in the decades that I've been practicing, my mind has changed. I feel like I I, I say to my husband sometimes he, he'll tease he'll say so what's changed so all these retreats all this all that I say well I'm kind he said you're always kind I said I'm kinder and I mean that because I really am kinder with myself because I'm more forgiving and I'm kinder with other people because I really get it that people are doing whatever they're doing because they can't be doing anything else and when I really get that I can skip over or move through being annoyed at them and thinking, ah, may they be at ease. That's really what I'd like to do. Sometimes on retreat, I say to people, I think on retreat, when all of my stuff goes through my mind and there are inevitably people and situations that come up that I think, err. And then if I save it a little bit and just instead of retelling myself the story of why I don't, like them, why they frighten me. If I just sit with the feeling that comes in me and I realize it's so unpleasant, that not liking is so unpleasant, and I just stay with what I, you know, what my feeling is I'm afraid of this person or I'm uh, dismayed by this person or whatever it is. But if I can sit with the feeling, then it passes slowly. You move out of it. And then when I'm not fighting with a feeling of aversion, my mind is more relaxed. It remembers what it knows, which is everybody's doing the best they can. And it doesn't help them or me to be mad. May all beings be at ease means myself and them. So we started to talk. And what I think is that slowly, 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 incrementally over time, the mind changes and it doesn't get stuck so long and uh, and it doesn't get startled so much. Um, I'll tell you one more fact that I learned this week and then I'm going to, we're, going to, we're going to share some and then we're going to sit some and then we're going to share some and then we're going to sit. How many people did the homework, by the way? Okay. So how many people thought, uh-oh, what homework did I not do? <laughs> Especially the people who were here. Uh oh. So, how many people did the homework? I just want to see one, two, so I'll know how to gauge this one, two, three, four. Uh, okay. The homework was uh, bring a, something visual or so, like a, something that you could hear, like a, so something visual that you could show, like a picture or something uh, that you could listen to, like a poem or a line or something that changed your mind or your heart about something, that remains for you something that converts your mind to ah when you see it or hear it. So then I was going to say, now we'll see something, but... uh, I'll say two more things. One is that my friend Cliff Sarin, who's a neuro 
neuroscience researcher at UC Davis studying say, really the foremost mindfulness uh, research knowledgeable or right up there with them in, in the world now um, was telling me yesterday about a new research project that he's hoping to start in which uh, people who volunteer and are going on retreat, a mindfulness retreat for seven days, five days or more, will take a certain test. It's a visual test. I think it's on a computer. You look at things. I'm not sure exactly how the dynamics of it, but there's a test before and a test right after the retreat. And in the test, it includes looking at uh, photographs or looking at scenes and there's some way of measuring how long the eye stays focused on the uh, difficult part of that scene, on, on uh, something that's frightening or uh, really repulsive in some way. And the hypothesis of the research is that when the mind is balanced and awake, which one imagines it will be after five or seven days, then it's not as startleable that it stays longer on what's disagreeable. It's still disagreeable, but you don't need to look away. Like the mind says, oh, okay. Does that make sense to you? All right. You know that... Uh, well, we'll see. Uh, I know myself that when I go on retreat or even in my daily life, Let's say on retreat, because we could, it would be a uh, thing that everybody could relate to. Go on retreat, and you sit down the first day, and you start trying to sit, and your mind is still, my mind is still juggling a thousand things that I didn't do, or worries, or concerns, or my family, or this or that. And uh, my mind is easily irritated so that somebody doesn't close the door carefully and go bang and feel startled and you have the thought that person should be more careful with the door you're walking into a retreat hall and you know don't bang the door what's the matter with them then somebody else is coughing cough cough all right somebody could cough but then they cough again they say well listen if you got a cough you shouldn't come in you know you don't say anything but you think that how many people ever thought that and they're like okay then the person next to you breathes too loud. You know that? And then you think, what's the matter with them? They're breathing so loud. It's not a yoga class. They could just breathe quietly. And I should have realized that even before we started to meditate, before we even had the instructor, I saw they were breathing loud. I should have moved. That The mind gets irritable. Out of, but if you, on the second day or the third day or the fifth day, Somebody bangs the door, you don't startle so much. You know, okay, bang the door, it's over, it's bang, finished. You don't have to add more to it by being irritated about it. Person coughs, you think, oh, I'm, that person still has a cough. I'm sorry they have a cough because it probably messed up their retreat for them. They're probably looking forward to this retreat so much. And now they're sick, they probably don't feel good. Person next to you breathes so loud. Maybe they have something the matter with them. If it's really distracting, I'll move. You know that nothing becomes so monumental; it becomes less startling. 
And I guess that Cliff's research is when we're less startleable and more present, we can really more fully and more compassionately grok what's going on around us and that we will be able, therefore, to express ourselves in the world with more compassion. That when we pass someone who's in a very disagreeable state in the street and, and, and that where there might be a recoil of, uh, think, oh dear, look at this poor person who's living in this circumstance. That, and, and to be able not only to look at it, maybe to say, hello, do you need a place to stay overnight? You want to know where to go? I like very much that particular th- idea that what happens when we're composed enough to see clearly that what comes up on out of us is tenderness and concern. Because we don't actually think tender until after we have a thought, what can I do? The first expression of that, you feel it. Ah. We, ah, when something startles you. I had an experience the other day of uh, seeing the uh, uh, exhibit in the Asian Art Museum. A friend took me to the Asian Art Museum. The exhibit is over now. But uh, it's an exhibit that she knows well and is a docent at the museum. So she said, okay, now here's how you do it. You go in, it's two rooms. These are the two rooms I'll show you. You walk in it, but don't say anything. I went with my husband, he had the same instruction. Just look at the art and don't talk to each other and don't talk to anybody else. And look as long as you want. And uh, when you finished looking, we'll talk about it. And she did not accompany us in. They walk around and I was so happy not to have to talk about it. Oh, look at this. What do you think of this? I like this. If I don't have to talk and I can just walk and look, then I don't have to think either. And what you feel is that your body responds to everything. And you look at something and it's either too much and then you, you say, wait a minute, take a breath and look again and look again. And you see that moment to moment, you, I can be here with this, it's an overwhelming thing, but I can be here. And then you walk to something else and it's startling because it's so beautiful. So instead of feeling, ah, oh, it's too much, you feel, ah, ah. This is so moving. This brings out my feeling of tenderness. And what happens with that is that here I am present because I'm not distracted and made more present by the art, which is each of it a masterpiece. So it's captivating. And then more available to see my own vulnerability as a person with a vulnerable heart. And so it's in many, it, for, there's so many lessons I learned from that, I mean, about that our body knows before we know how we feel about something. And actually, when we feel, or the mind says, eek, it's saying eek after it's felt that, it's reading that movement. And in the instructions for developing a mind that's skilled in mindfulness, is that it should be able to be awake to what's happening and balanced and know what's happening. So it's not that everything gets to be just the same. There are things that really have to, whoa, relax into. And there are things that you have to, ah, 
open to, but you can do pretty comfortably. You get a little teary on certain ones, but the one for sure thing is you feel absolutely alive. Does that make sense to you? I think to myself so much about how there should be a rule in museums that nobody can talk. Maybe the guides can talk. Maybe. <laughs> at certain times, after you look at the stuff, and then they can talk to you. We'll come back and talk about that. But I wanted to tell you that because now I want for us to see or hear some of the presentations that people brought as the homework. And... Uh, Everybody who wants to show or tell their homework could think about taking two minutes to do it, maybe three. But first, let's sit for three minutes. Let's sit for five minutes. So we're making ourselves into that mode. And then if you, bring, if you brought stuff that you want to share, I shouldn't call it stuff, that under things that you want to share... Let's just sit.
wants to share. Yeah. Come up. Yeah, come up. This is a, a vignette. It's by a poet, but it's, it's, a, it's a vignette, not a poem. Um, Fernando Pessoa. Remind everybody of your name. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Kyle. And um, uh, Fernando Pessoa. I think I'm pronouncing that right. He's a Portuguese poet. Um, it's untitled. Um, he says, I went into the barber shop as usual with the pleasant sensation of entering a familiar place easily and naturally. New things are distressing to my sensibility. I'm only at ease in places where I've already been. After I'd sat down in the chair, I happened to ask the younger barber, occupied in in fastening a clean, cool cloth around my neck, about his older colleague from the chair to the right, a spry fellow who had been sick. I didn't ask this because I felt obliged to ask something. It was the place in my memory that sparked the question. He passed away yesterday, flatly answered the barber's voice behind me and the linen cloth as his fingers um, withdrew from the final tuck of the cloth in between my shirt collar and my neck. The whole of my irrational good mood abruptly died, like the eternally missing barber from the adjacent chair. A chill swept over all my thoughts. I said nothing. Nostalgia. I even feel it for people and things that were nothing to me because time's fleeing is for me an anguish and life's mystery is a torture. Faces I habitually see on my habitual streets, if I stop seeing them, I become sad. And they were nothing to me except perhaps the symbol of all of life. The nondescript old man with dirty gaiters who often crossed my path at 9.30 in the morning, the crippled seller of lottery tickets who would pester me in vain, the round and ruddy old man smoking a cigar at the door of the tobacco shop, the pale tobacco shop owner. What has happened to them all? Who, because I regularly saw them, were a part of my life. Tomorrow, I too will vanish from the Rua de Prata, the Rua dos Duradores, the Rua dos Fanqueros. Tomorrow, I too, I, this soul that feels and thinks, this universe I am for myself, yes, tomorrow, I too will be the one who no longer walks these streets, whom others will vaguely evoke with a, what's become of him? And everything I've done, Everything I've felt and everything I've lived will amount to merely one less passerby on the everyday streets of some city or other. Thank you, Kyle. I'm thinking, let's sit for a couple of minutes.
Who else would like to read or show? I have a story about a haircut. And it, it reminded me, and it changed my life. It, it changed the way I thought about people. And I was in New Orleans, and I was making a book of drawings and photographs. And I w- wanted to f- make a page about haircuts, because they have really different haircuts there. And there was a young black girl. She was with a kind of a gang of young people. They were walking down the street and I was trying, sneaking around trying to get a picture of her because she had the really, this strange hair. I have a picture of it, but I don't have it here. But she had like one part was really short and one part was really long. And they were like hustling around and I was like sneaking around. And finally I said, well, she's not that scary. And if she's a gangster or whatever, a gang girl, I don't care. I'm going to just ask her, can I take her picture? And I went up to her and I said, can I take your picture? It's your hair and I, it's really, really unusual. And she was so sweet. And she said, I know it's really different. I cut my hair and I just decided to cut off this, real, this part really short and I donated it to Locks of Love. And I totally thought, I've got to stop judging people by how they look. And that was like clobber over the head. Thank you. Thank you. Sit a minute, sit a minute. You'll be the next, Jeff. Okay, let's... Who else wants to show or tell? Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yes. Uh, This is a poem that I wrote called Mortality Revisited. I'm amused to think how tiny my span is. Maybe I'll see a hundred. Bristlecone pine... On the other side of the Sierra, not much to look at. The oldest one, I read, is 5,068 years old this year. A moss found in Antarctica, I read elsewhere, is 5,500 years old. But these numbers are puny compared to the 45 million years attributed to a strain of yeast a Cal Poly professor found preserved in a piece of amber from Myanmar, and woke from its long slumber to make a beer you can buy at Gennaro's Grill and Garden in San Luis Obispo. (laughs) Thank you very much. 
someone want to show something to look at? Lynn. likes it because it shows the dignity of man no matter what the circumstance. And my overlay is a Buddhist saying, um, nobly born, do not forget the luminosity of your own mind. Trust it. It is home. Thank you very much. I'm really noting the uh, similarity of my experience this morning with being in the museum. Something happens, there's a stirring up, and then the mind says, okay, relax. Someone else want to? Yeah, Jeff. This is um, a number of phrases that I put together. Uh, Norman, Fish, Norman Fisher, our, our Zen friend, um, this is from a Dharma talk he gave on the subject of Uji, spelled U-G-I. And I'm told that it translates for the time being. And so this was constructed out of phrases extracted from his talk. So the authorship is Mr. Fishers, I'm sort of like the um, the technician who puts who cuts together the highlights for ESPN. So, mm-hmm. so I call it time being. For the time being, I'm being time. Things are getting better and worse for the time being. For being in time is only for the time being.
Who else? Joe. This is um, something that I have on my desk at home, and it's been here for a long time. You're probably all familiar with it. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all work out. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better, and it has already worked out. At the center of your being... You have the answer. You know who you are and what you want. There is no need to run outside for better seeing, nor to peer from a window. Rather, abide at the center of your being, for the more you leave it, the less you learn. Search your heart and see the way to do is to be. And that's um, a translation. There's several, and it's lots of. Um, I don't think this is... Can you hear me? Um, I have learned from my daughter, who's 20-some years younger than I, or more. Um, I, I couldn't believe. She came home one day from San Francisco, and uh, she had had her hair cut. It was real long on one side and real short on the other side. And I thought, oh, no. What am I going to do? What will people think? And all this kind of stuff. And then my daughter said to me, Well, Mom, it doesn't make any difference. It grows back. Mm-hmm. So I learned from her. Um, it, it's been a real learning experience for me. She has m- been meditating for a long time. And just, she's really very serious about it. And I'm learning from her an awful lot. Um, this is my first time here. And I must say, it's, it's inspirational. And uh, I think that I would enjoy this very much. I'm very glad you're here and that you shared.
Who else there? Yeah. I wasn't here last week, but I did the homework. (laughs) First, I want to say how joyful it is to be here and experience all the profound wisdom in the sharing that everybody has brought here today. I read a book, it is in the bookshop, um, by Atam. Uh, He's a Tibetan... Buddhist monk. It's called Embracing Each Moment. And he said, the inquiry is in life, what really matters? And I knew immediately. I knew the answer to be love to love like you were talking about Mm -hmm. myself included and then every moment seemed like a weather system Mm -hmm. that would come and go because I knew that what really matters to me is loving each moment just the way it is. Thank you very much. Who else brought something? Bonnie. I brought a photograph that I have named Joy and Wonder. (laughs) It's of our two-year-old grandson when being presented with a piece of my husband's birthday cake. (laughs) (laughs) One of one of my teachers once said um, One of my teachers, uh, Rabbi Zalman Shlachter Shalomi, whose uh, fourth anniversary of his passing is just this last week, uh, used to say, teach, as part of his teachings, he said, you know, when uh, something is lovely, like um, seeing your grandchild's face when presented with birthday cake in front of them, when something is lovely and your heart picks up and you know this is lovely, I'm alive, I have a grandchild, it's a miracle, this is fantastic. And you know also, this is a fantastic moment. He said, really, make a deposit 
in the bank account in your mind of lovely moments. He was, um, he would say this sometimes when responding to you have to be here now. He said you can't be any place else now. So you are here now. But at the same time, you do have a memory now. And that memory is supported or enhanced or um, nurtured by those bank account deposits for some other time. Who else is waiting to read or share or show? Ah, there you are. I've been forgetting to say, say your name. I'm Suzanne, and this is by Richard Rohr. When you are ready, you will be both underwhelmed and overwhelmed at the boundless mystery of your own humanity. You will know you are standing under the same waterfall of mercy as everybody else and receiving an undeserved radical grace which gets to the root of your own soul. Without that underlying experience of God as both abyss and ground, it is almost impossible to live in the now, in the fullness of who I am, and almost impossible to experience the presence that, paradoxically, always fills the abyss and shakes the ground. I sometimes have the feeling, I'm I'm hopeful that you do too, that um, having the luxury of being able to listen to something that can touch you and having the luxury of not having to barrel right along and do the next thing. It, uh, um, for me, it's a more spacious time, you know, that I can really register this. I think it's a direct practice of making the mind one that moment to moment is able to say, okay, this is happening. Okay, this is happening. And either it's, it's like, ah, everything's passing and how momentary our life is and how beautiful this is. The same mind that appreciates how a two-year-old looks at birthday cake and looks at, all of a sudden, that person is gone out of the life. I was driving down uh, Poplar Avenue during this last week, two or three days ago, in the morning, driving along to where I was going to go in an ordinary mind state of driving along, going somewhere, and in front of my life, there's lots of trees on either side. And there's a whoosh right from out of this brush over here and up into the sky right in front of my line of vision of a flying thing, a bird, I assumed right away. But it was a bird and it had a, an animal hanging out of its mouth like a mouse. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was a little animal, and it had feet, and it had a tail dangling, and it came up right in front of my... And I saw it, it's a funny-looking bird, and I thought, it's a bird with a mouse or something. 
but then I felt maybe I hallucinated that. First of all, I felt, uh, it was the same kind of, that you feel when there's a deer along the side of the road that's gotten killed overnight, or a raccoon, or a weasel, or something, where you feel, and then you realize, you know, I, I, I actually called my son, I said, Michael, I, I don't think birds eat animals, uh, except maybe, you know, hawks, but it wasn't a, it wasn't like a vulture and it wasn't like a, uh, the turkey vultures that we sometimes have over the hills. I said, owls do that. He said, we have owls in Kentfield. You hear them all the time. It's probably an owl. So, but I didn't see it. It wasn't a big owl. So it was probably a little owl, but probably an owl. But I realized that that whole discussion was I didn't call him really to find out about the owl, whether or not it's an owl. I, I, called, I called him because I wanted to touch somebody at that moment, and I knew he'd answer his phone. And it's another one of there's somebody missing from the next chair. And there's someone just someone who was alive, now isn't, the next second. That mouse is marching along, minding its business. And the mouse in front of it was continued along its day, and the mouse behind it. And that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing that owls eat mice. They, they have to eat mice. They have to eat something. We all do. And so we all eat each other all the time. Or eat something that was having a life going along. And it just, when it startles, you really, ah, there's that lesson. I think I think a lot about um, the frequency of having the lesson. I have been thinking about um, if it's true that my mind is more forgiving now than 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. I think it is. It got there incrementally. It didn't suddenly become different from how it was. Uh, sometimes I... Uh, I want to make sure that everybody was shared who wanted to. Anybody said, well, wait, okay, I'm glad. Anybody else? And oh, so we have three more things. Wait, wait, I'm going to tell this little story. We have plenty of time. Not rushed. I sometimes tell this story, which enough of you have heard, so I will be very brief, that my husband took very seriously ill four years ago. And for some ten days he was in an emergency, in a coma, in an intensive care unit, and uh, because he was already over 80 years old, there was very little hope in the medical staff that he would be well again. But he is. And he's really well, and he does all the things and, that he did before and goes to a gym five mornings a week. And, but during the time that he was very seriously ill and it looked like he might not survive, I thought to myself that everything that he'd ever done that annoyed me, all his little habits, everybody has annoying habits, I would, you know, if he died, I would miss him so terribly with his annoying habits and that I would never again bring up the annoying habits because it's not what's important. It's really not what's important. Really what's important is to love. Somebody said that really what's important is to love. And that's just a, such a, a nonsense of the mind to fixate. There is nothing important except connecting with love and compassion and forgiveness. 
And, and the reason I tell that story from time to time is I felt that very strong. I got it, absolutely. And then after a little while, <laughs> I started to get annoyed again at the same stuff. Now the reason I tell you this is now when I get annoyed, I don't get as annoyed and not as long. And most of the time I don't say anything about it. Some of the time maybe I do, but most of the time I don't. Because I know that at some point, when it catches up with me, if I outlive him, I mean, might outlive me, I'll think to myself, all those times that I got annoyed, I could have been busy loving him. Now, the body gets annoyed just because it does. You know, that it just does. It's like, ah, and it corrects itself, ah. Even with the the bird making off with that mouse, think oh, but then you think well the bird has to eat, also, and that's how the world works. Things happen, and then other things happen, and then other things happen. It's not like birds are bad and mice are good, and mice eat other things, and other things eat other things. But to be able to say this is this is really what happens in the world, and people people die everybody dies and people die sometimes in an untimely way and we're more used to people dying and when we say in a timely way but even in a timely way we miss them and even after they're gone we miss them and we leave pictures of them around and we tell stories about them myself I think that it's valuable to me to think of my stories and your stories and we share them with each other. What were you going to share this morning? Um, Well, I wasn't here last week. Talk in the microphone and tell your name. My name's Wendy, and I wasn't here last week, but um, I've thought of a lot of things. But I think what this morning, what happened that really... um, Thinking about it now um, feels really, I don't know, I, I thought I would share it. So um, I drove out from Petaluma, and, you know, part of me was, like, in a hurry, and the other part was, like, but it's so beautiful, this drive. And, and I was listening to the radio. They were playing some really beautiful older songs, and I was kind of singing along. And then the song came on the radio, and... Um, and I started singing along, and I, and I have this attachment, like a not-so-great memory that, that also goes along with this song. And so I, I went to change the channel on the radio, the station, and I thought, hmm, you know, I, I'm mostly past that now. And at, right when I thought that, it, this other, I just started singing along. It's like, this is such a beautiful song. And that part was still there a little bit, but mm-hmm. I was like in a completely different place, like where I had been when I started driving. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it just really struck me. And actually it didn't then because I was, I was just doing it. But as I think about it now, it was really, really. See, I'm, th- I'm particularly happy that you told that, Wendy, because the sense that I had and I've, I've been thinking about it a lot all this week with the the mouse and every other little time that my mind got is that 
I think it's valuable not to flinch or not to go away. You flinch right away, but say, wait a minute, you can stay here. You can listen to that song. It's a long time ago. And I think each time we do that, like um, a little bit of the weight comes off of pains that are former pains. I, I, I thought of something yesterday I, where I caught myself. I can't even remember what it was that I thought. I remember I was walking out from someplace and I was on my way to the car and something reminded me of something in my, I don't even know if it's my proximal or distal memory, but I thought of a, a, a moment in my life about which my mind flinches. Ah, and I could feel my thoughts say, oh, don't think that. You know, let's look for the car. And I thought, wait a minute, let's just go back. I just missed an opportunity to say, okay, that's what I was thinking. Okay, you can think that. And the mind goes, ah. They say, no, you can relax around that. And I think every time you do that, you take off a feather from the, the weights in your mind. You know, like if, if you take off a ton of feathers, they weigh a ton. You know, that it doesn't matter that each one is a ton. I mean, each one is a feather. If you take off enough, you get a lighter heart. And I, I you know, I think that's the value of thinking about, um, that of marking things like the day that so-and-so died or the day that, and anything that was difficult for you happened. Uh, because then, oh, I didn't, I, didn't, I still feel that. Sometimes people say that, that they're maybe even meditating and they say, you know, I was in the best mind, I was so spacious about everything and then suddenly I remembered and I thought, ah. I said, but you know, then I stayed there and I said, this is really painful, this memory. And you stay and you stay and then the pain just dissolves and you do the next thing. And each time I think you take a feather off, not the whole thing. But that when you finish, that's, 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 um, I used to say to people that I thought that meditating, uh, mindfulness meditation was like taking your mind to the laundry. I think it's actually, because you know, that you always find that there's something that you didn't see there before that you could, but I don't think it's like to the laundry. I think it's like to the dry cleaners. I, was, I guess I was thinking about feather quilts and you take out one feather at a time, but. But I think slowly, slowly, the mind becomes able to not become so unbalanced by it that it can stay present. And it's, I think, for a double reason of if it stays present, then and not so startled, then your overall experience is less agitated because you you uh, you ride with the with the moment more easily. And I think the long term effect of that is that the the waves in the mind get smaller because you live through them and you live through them. And I think it heals things that happen. Many, 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 many years ago, like in the 1960s or 70s, when yoga was just becoming popular in the West, there was this big poster of Swami Satchidananda. You ever remember this poster? That poster of Swami Satchidananda on a surfboard. It wasn't Swami Satchidananda on the surfboard. It was a rendering of him in his, what do you call that, a goatee or a... Dhoti. Dhoti, dhoti. Standing on a surfboard 
in the middle of waves and it says you can't stop the waves but you can learn to surf <laughs> which when you think about it might on the one hand be sound like it's a little bit superficial uh, but I don't think so I think you can't stop the waves but you can learn to ride them that's maybe that you can learn to surf not necessarily superficial I think the the the, the, the um, I think also the waves get less. The waves get less. Who else had something they wanted to share? There you go. There you go. My name is Anne. Um, yesterday I got an email with a picture sorry, of my grandson, who was a marine biologist, standing with absolute, she was looking with absolute delight with a baby turtle because that's his project this summer. And then I got another one with a picture of my granddaughter. She's a graphic artist in internship at a corporation who designed the most beautiful breast cancer t-shirt. And when I was sitting here today, it said, we will survive with young people like that. Thank you for today. Mm-hmm. Somebody else who didn't share yet over here? Oh, Andrew first, and then you. So this is a poem that I wrote that I share with the kids that I work with. And each phrase is on the in-breath or the out-breath. So here we go. With this breath, my mind grows stronger so I can focus a little longer. I breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth. That's what focus time is all about. When my mind starts to wander about, I come back to my in-breath, then I breathe out. I breathe into my belly, I breathe out to calm my brain, Slowly I start to settle. My mind feels more trained. Oh. <laughs> you know, in, in a few minutes when we sit again, I'm going to ask you to say that. Wouldn't you like to have that as instructions? And when you do it, do it twice through. Okay? Maybe even three times through. And we'll do all those instructions because I was doing the instructions. But everybody needs to share who planned to share it. There you go. So, Mariana. A couple of days ago, I, I flew from um, Copenhagen to um, San Francisco. And I had um, an economy seat. The plane was completely full. When I get to my seat, 39C or something, I see, I see that uh, beside me there is a mother with a young baby and um, father, and I think, oh my God, <laughs> I just don't want this. Screaming, I, got, I thought, and what if I smell diaper smell? I was already a little nauseated. And my mind went into aversive um, anticipation of circumstances. And then what happened in 11 hours, 
took me by total surprise. There was not once a scream. There was not once a diaper smell. It was the perfect teaching. The mother was quiet. She was round. She had huge breasts. She was feeding the baby. Baby was contented. And she put it in this um, shawl. And when it woke up, it looked at me and it smiled at me. And there was just joy. And then, um, and everything happened very quiet. The parents were so quiet. She was just doing what the baby needed, and it felt secure and warm. And I thought, well, what an opportunity, you know, for this baby to to be who it is. And then it was very cramped, and when the little legs touched me, I got like moments of bliss, and the flesh was so um, so pure and essential, and I had eleven hours of delight. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, thank you very much, and also, I really want to take a moment to point out that. It's just saying again what I said before. As Mariana was telling that story, I look around and I see that everybody else is having second-hand pleasure at hearing the story. That when you when she said about the baby touched over the feet and I felt the light, didn't you feel that in your body that the baby was touching you in your feet? We do so much good for each other when we share what's happening with us, and we do it in an atmosphere where we have enough time to let it go in and not overwhelm us. Sometimes I have the fantasy, that uh, it's an absurd fantasy, of course, that there should be a rule at dinner parties that when somebody speaks, after they speak, it should be like minute before the next person speaks. See, actually think about what that person said. Or maybe eat a little bit. And then another person speaks. Then you wait a little bit. I mean, it would be a little bit, you know, be a peculiar dinner party. But it would be the opposite of everybody talking and want to say something else. Uh, um, So it's all right that we have it the way it is. But it's lovely to be able to do this. I wonder, anybody else had something prepared? They were going to say, yep, go. I, I had nothing prepared. But if you want to say something now, you can. Here comes Pam. My name's Missy, and I, I, um, I felt really, I felt really, uh, j- is jarred the word? Just really f- viscerally um, affected, I guess, by the poem uh, about the gentleman in the barbershop. And I've, I've, it's sort of been rolling around in the back of my consciousness <laughs> since, since um, all of this amazing sharing began. And I can't, I can't, and I can't stop being reminded every time someone tells a story or shares that, um, that yeah, that this gentleman... Is he meets all these all these people and he doesn't know them and they they affect him so so on such a small level and 
and he compares himself to to the, these like tiny little um, interactions and these small connections and how sad that was and um, and and it it bugged me because I could I could feel other people responding to how sad that was too like maybe maybe I'm just projecting but um, anyway it, it I, I keep being reminded about how how yeah that's that is a truth but it's only one small truth in in the context of that each one of these other people is um, is so much joy for another person mm-hmm. whether it's their mom when they were small or the people that just each person that they know mm-hmm. and that there there really are no small mm-hmm. even if it's a small connection to one guy in a barber shop mm-hmm. that's not their whole story mm-hmm. Thank you. No, I, I, absolutely. Everybody is one tiny, tiny moment of awareness. What I was thinking about in writing things down for myself and from listening and hearing other people's stories is some of them are stories that will stay with me. The, the, the barbershop will stay with you for a while, maybe for a long time. And I think to myself... Um, I often think people go, are leaving from a mindfulness retreat or any kind of a retreat. They often say at the end, I'm a little afraid to go out in the world because I feel so vulnerable. I'm afraid I'll be too vulnerable. In the world there's too much happening, too fast, too loud. And I, I like to say, and I hope I'm not being glib and I don't have to take this back at some point, but I don't think that there's, I don't think there's such a state as too vulnerable. I think if everybody became too vulnerable, we'd all calm down and stop killing each other and despoiling the planet. And we'd probably have to cry a lot before we did that, looked around and said, look what we're doing, and look what we've done, and look what we've already done. And let's just stop, let's not do that anymore. I'm actually hoping that that'll happen, that we'll become more vulnerable and and calm ourselves down and be more careful not to add to the pain in the world because there's all the pain in the world that's there and the, the, the pain that everybody ultimately will share of the pain of missing people. I also think it's so, it, it so much bears saying that it's not just having experiences that touch but knowing, oh, this is an experience that maybe will change me. Let me make a deposit of it in my mind. A man came to a yoga class maybe 30 years ago that I was teaching, or 35. Maybe 40 years ago. I, I, I was half my age. I was 40 at that time. And teaching yoga at the College of Marin. And, I be, and in addition to the regular yoga classes that I taught... I taught one class that I particularly planned and had um, passed through the program committee at the College of Marin of teaching yoga for older adults. And it said in the catalog, older adults was anyone over 55. And I wasn't that old. I was 40, 40-something 40 for sure. And um, so we did a, a, a practice together that was a thoughtful practice for people 
who were in a mature body. Um, and as, I, as was my habit with classes, I'd give the instructions from the front and I'd do what I'm doing along with the people there so I don't give the instructions and then move around and move people. Some people do and I love that because you know, if I were really going to do yoga as a, as a serious practice and, and uh, um, body form, I would want someone to correct my posture in an ever so gentle way. But I really liked um, that my teacher before me had been up in the front of the room, a big room with a lot of people, and on a kind of a raised platform. And she just went ahead and did her practice and said what she was doing. Bring your arms out to the side, turn them up, turn them down, rotate your wrists this way, that way. And so she was doing, and everybody did the best they could as a following along with the instructions kind of like watching a video in a certain way. But I found that very comforting to me because I didn't have to worry about, uh-oh, am I doing it right? I did the best I could. And then when I went on to teach, I did the same way. And um, somebody came to the older adults, yoga for older adults class, on a particular occasion and I noticed they were people, all of them were people over 55, I guess. But one particular person came in, and he was on those half-crutches, the kind of Yitzhak Perlman half-crutches. And he came with a friend, and he went to a mat in the back of the room, and he lowered himself down and did whatever he could do. I suppose I didn't watch him particularly, because... I like to feel I'm seeing the whole class and I'm just moving myself. And moving continuously from this to this to this to that, whatever. And then at the end of the class, everybody got up and was going out and going home. And um, I noticed that he was getting up in the back of the class and everybody had left. I went in the back to thank him for coming. And uh, he said, uh, thank you very much for the class. I enjoyed it very much. Uh, I think you're a very good teacher. And I won't be coming back again because it's a little too hard for me. So I won't do it again. And then he was walking out the door. And he turned around and he said, you know, I just would like for you to know that I was part of the USA Olympic rowing team in the 1904 Olympics. And I said, I'm glad to know that. And they just told me that in that nice way, you know. And I thought to myself, I'm very glad that he had something to say. I thought to myself, remember this, Sylvia. There is going to be a time when you will be in a position where you can't do something that everybody else is doing. And that that's all right. You'll be able to say, I remember when I did this. That... uh, there are a lot of things I can do. They say, okay, this hike now is a, a two-mile hike and it has some serious uphills and then some really serious downhills with a lot of rocks in the trail. So who wants to go on the hike? And mostly I don't do that now. Maybe if I had, my, if I had two walking sticks with me, maybe. But I think to myself, you know, once upon a time, I ran that trail. You know, I'm glad to remember that. I know it's a trail I know well. 
maybe I just will sit here and watch the people leave and come back. In 1904, to be able to make a deposit in your mind, but to know at the time, this person is teaching me a lesson. You can do things for a while, and then you can't do them anymore. And it's all right. That's the way it is. So it's not just to be touched, but it's to be touched and be changed by the touched. That's what I'm interested in, what changed me. Once upon a time, I saw, I was in Dharamsala, and um, I was with a group, I was at a conference, and there are, alas, in India, as in many parts of the world, some people who really need to um, be begging in order to feed themselves and their child. And uh, a woman came asking for me to give her something. I, I suppose I did. Um, and she had a baby. In, in, a, in part of her sari was wrapped around like a baby sling. She had a baby in it. And what I remember is when she put out her hand to take whatever I gave her, that, you know, when you work in the garden, say, and you can see the, all the fine little lines in your hand because the, the soil gets in your fingers. There are all little lines in there that you, don't, that, you, that you can see suddenly in your palm, which you can't see after you've washed it with soap and water. The woman put out her hand, and I could see all the lines in her little hand. And I'm in Dharamsala, which is far from the sea. And there's no rivers there and I thought she surely doesn't live with flushing toilets and running water and I had the thought I don't know when if or if this woman is ever going to get to wash her hands really in this life and I was touched by that and she had a lovely demeanor with her child and that was the end but I remembered her hand and then and it's 1995 so it's more than 20 years when I um, get into a bathtub I often think about her I didn't stop taking baths to save water I did in the drought but not now but not every single time I get in the bathtub but a lot of the time that I get in the bathtub, and you know when you sink into a bathtub and it's so nice and so warm, and you have three different kinds of soap around there, I think about her, and I, you know, I don't think, ah, oh, I shouldn't be taking the bath. I think, ah, oh, there ought to be a way that the planet cleans up and desalinates and cleans up water and distributes its wealth and its technology so that everybody has clean water and everybody can wash their hands. There are some things that etch themselves in your mind and that you remember. I remember the man in the Olympics. I remember that woman. You probably remember things in your life as well, like an image. I'd like for us to sit again. I liked today very much you know, often, and we didn't so far do it, at the end of our sitting, we'll sit for about 10 minutes, at the end of the sitting, we uh, mention people who um, are in some special circumstance. And sometimes we mention something wonderful, someone who's just had some 
great good fortune happened, which is fine for you to mention right now, of course. Like the pleasure of, uh, my pleasure of having a grandson that invites me to dinner in his home with his wife and his mother-in-law. That's a lovely, you have to get old to do that. You have to really get old to do that. But it's worth it to get old to do that. You know, that uh, and I thought to myself, this is one of the perks of getting very old, so I'm happy about that. Never mind the two-kilometer walk, walk over a rocky trail. I can go to dinner with my married grandson. Hey, that's nice. And usually we'd say that at the very end, but today I thought we might mention, uh, just in this mood, which is different from usual, the people that we'll mention later, would have mentioned later. I'm going to imagine that my friend Rachel is with us in this room for this sitting. My friend Rachel is uh, 76 years old and in the final days of her life. And she, she is dying of glioblastoma and she will soon, but she is surrounded by people who love her and are there all the time and keep her very physically comfortable as she passes out of this life. So my friend Rachel is here with me today. Who have you brought with you that we don't see? I bring my brother, Phil, who's been working with his kidney cancer for the last five years, and who this Friday will get his black belt in Aikido. (laughs) Who else? Rebecca's here as well. Marty, you were going to say somebody. Well, I'm thinking a lot about my mother, and I just want to tell a teeny story. Last Sunday at friends' meeting at friends' house where she lives, she's not one to speak out very much, but she decided to take the microphone, and she said, I just want everyone to know that I have reached my 100th birthday, which is at the end of August, but because we're talking about celebrations and we're really leading up to it in a grand way, every day she wakes up and she's just happy to be alive. That's great. I'm glad. Jean comes every once in a while to class with Marty. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. What's her name? Marie. Marie. Who else wants to bring someone in the room? Yeah. I bring uh, my 85-year-old friend, um, Irene. 
same type of cancer. Mm -hmm. I bring my friend Travis, who is in hospice with brain tumors. I bring with me my son Sean, my daughter-in-law Sylvia, and my grandson Arthur, and I pray every month that they don't have to move People on the border, all the poor and the desperate and the guards who can choose to be cruel or less cruel and all the lawyers and social workers and the people who are missing their children and uh, all the undocumented among us, those who fear detention and deportation, that they be protected at peace. Yeah. I'm thinking of my friend Judy, who's an art therapist and has helped many children, who is now in a coma after the anniversary. Mm -hmm. of my son, who is in his fourth week of um, plebe summer at the Naval Academy, and wishing him strength and health and, uh, and stamina. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I said earlier that there were two moments in the, I'm going to come back, Ellen, two moments in the morning that I thought were really integral to us being together. And I said the, other, the earlier one was when we talked to each other and greeted each other and said hello. And the other one is always when we share what's on our mind and what's happening of a momentous nature with the people who are dear to us. Ellen, you were going to say?
that's it. That was all he didn't say. No, no, go ahead. No, 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 come. Today would have been my father's 113th birthday. Um, he was a Bible-thumping, born-again Christian. Probably not happy about me being here today, but I want him to know that I am just fine. <laughs> I am grateful to all of you for being here for each other and me. I think that's what we do for each other, that we touch each other. To the degree that we're touched, we remain committed to life. Andrew, we have four minutes. <laughs> you talk for two of them, and then we'll sit for the last two and then I'll ring the bell and this will count as a totally complete meditation morning <laughs> don't you think so mm-hmm. all those in favor of it counts okay there you go alright go Andrew with this breath my mind grows stronger so I can focus a little longer. I breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth. That's what focus time is all about. When my mind starts to wander about come back to my in-breath. Then I breathe out. I breathe into my belly. I breathe out to calm my brain. Slowly I start to settle. My mind feels more trained. With this breath, my mind grows stronger, so I can focus a little longer. I breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth. That's what focus time is all about. When my mind starts to wander about, I come back to my in-breath. Then I breathe out. I breathe into my belly 
I breathe out to calm my brain. Slowly I start to settle. My mind feels more trained. Thank you for being here. Donald, I think, comes back next week. And I'll be back later in August. But I hope your summer, and I hope your summer continues wonderfully well. And if you are new to coming today, please come back. Always feel welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.